Hello, and again, welcome to BitDepth. I'm Santiago Ramones. I'll start with a quick disclaimer. This is me checking my privilege. I am a 24-year-old, undocumented Hispanic male born in Venezuela and living in Oklahoma City. I'm a DACA recipient. I have a master's degree in music composition and a bachelor's and associate's degree in contemporary music production. Those things were paid for in large part by my parents. I have an ambient album coming out on August 8th called Bloom. I'm married to a white woman. I was very lucky to still have a job working in a field related to my degree field as COVID-19 first made an impact. And I got to work from home for a while. My wife recently lost her job due to COVID. Although humorously enough, if you want to find a humorous, she got her job back and I've just lost mine. COVID hits hard, doesn't it? I don't have a green card yet, which means I'm not a U.S. citizen. However, I live in the United States and I have a voice. I'm privileged enough to have a podcast. I'm pretty lucky. Maybe not the luckiest, but that's okay. This is me exercising my right to have an opinion, and I thank you for listening. The title says Systemic Racism. I'll be discussing it in the context of police brutality. It is currently July of the year 2020, and protests as well as riots have been happening in major cities in the United States. These protests are the result of generations of systemic racism, and they were sparked by the killing of George Floyd in Minneapolis by Derek Chauvin, a police officer, and three other police officers that aided in his death, Thomas Lane, J. Alexander Koenig, and Tu Tao. This was on Monday, May 25th, and protests have escalated since. I'm going to talk about police, systemic racism, and how we could possibly, just maybe inconceivably, get out of this hurricane of rage. I'm using a lot of sources in this discussion, which can be found in the transcript of this podcast on my website. But I'm also saying stuff from my own memory, so don't expect a link for everything. So first, I'm going to detail George Floyd's death. I'm going to describe details that are graphic, so consider this to be your content warning. These are details that I've gathered from a New York Times article and video. Okay, so like I said, Monday, May 25th, in the evening in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Police responded to a call about someone allegedly using a counterfeit $20 bill at Cup Foods to buy cigarettes. George Floyd, age 46, is originally from Houston, but moved to Minneapolis because he lost his job due to COVID. Two employees from Cup Foods confronted Floyd about the counterfeit bill outside and asked for the cigarettes back. They called the police four minutes later, stating Floyd was drunk and not in control of himself. Two officers arrived, Thomas Lane and J. Alexander Koenig, and approached the blue SUV Floyd and his friend were in. Seconds after his arrival, Thomas Lane, a white officer, pulled his gun and ordered Floyd to put his hands on the steering wheel. Lane puts the gun away, but then pulls Floyd out of the SUV about 90 seconds later, puts Floyd in cuffs, and Koenig, a black officer, walks him to a restaurant wall. To pull statements from the New York Times video I'm quoting for these details, there are three things to know at this point. 
The officers arrived with the belief that a man was drunk and out of control. Floyd has not acted violently, and he is already in distress. Six minutes in, they move Floyd to their police vehicle. As they approached the car, Floyd fell to the ground. A second police car arrived. I guess this police car didn't get involved because it doesn't show up again in the source. According to reports, Floyd stated he was claustrophobic and refused to enter the police car. He is telling them at this point that he can't breathe. Nine minutes in, a third police car arrives. This third police car arrives with Tu Tao and Derek Chauvin. Both have previous records of complaints, with Tao having had six complaints and a brutality lawsuit, and Chauvin, with 17 complaints, being involved in three shootings with one of them fatal. Chauvin gets involved to get Floyd in the car, and with some further struggles, he pulls Floyd from the backseat of the car and onto the street. I'm assuming this is when the knee was put on Floyd's neck. There were two witnesses who filmed it, and it can be seen that all four officers were around Floyd, with Tao watching, and the other three applying pressure to his neck, torso, and legs. Floyd could be heard telling them he can't breathe. Officer Lane told the bystander filming to go to the other side of the street. The officers radioed a call for a non-emergency medical assistance regarding an injury to Floyd's mouth. The call was shortly upgraded to emergency medical assistance. Floyd was still telling them he can't breathe, specifically mentioning the knee in his neck, and called for his mother. The officers told him to get up and in the car. He said he will, but they still didn't get off him. Sixteen times, Floyd told them he couldn't breathe. Chauvin still didn't take his knee off of Floyd's neck, even after Floyd went unconscious. When bystanders yelled in protest, saying to get off of him, Chauvin reached for his mace. Minneapolis police policy states that a police officer can only use a neck restraint, such as having one's knee on a suspect's neck, if the suspect is actively resisting. Thomas Lane actually asked Chauvin twice if they should roll Floyd onto his side, but Chauvin said no. Even after the EMTs arrived, Chauvin kept his knee on Floyd's neck, who was unconscious, by the way, for another whole minute until the EMTs told him to get off. For eight minutes and 46 seconds, Chauvin's knee was on Floyd's neck. Once the EMTs left the scene, they called for additional medical help from the fire department. When the fire department arrived, according to the fire department incident report, the officers gave no clear information about Floyd or Floyd's whereabouts. It took the fire engine five minutes to reach the ambulance that Floyd was in, during which time Floyd went into full cardiac arrest. He was pronounced dead at 9.25 p.m. at a nearby hospital. Autopsies ruled his death as a homicide. The four officers involved were fired, and Derek Chauvin was charged with second-degree murder. The three other officers were charged with aiding and abetting murder. Okay, so I'm done with the New York Times video. Why am I getting so detailed about this? Does all of this matter? Well, to quote James Baldwin, not everything that is faced can be changed, but nothing can be changed until it is faced. 
we can see every point that this situation could have been de-escalated, but wasn't. You could break down every other situation and see if it was justified or not, or if it could have been de-escalated or not. Let's actually look at some basic de-escalation tips. Here's what I found after doing some simple Googling and ending up on the Crisis Prevention Institute website. Communication is key. Undivided attention. Be non-judgmental. Focus on feelings. Allow silence. Clarify messages. Develop a plan. Use a team approach. Recognize personal limits. Debrief. Obviously, this list is more for workplace-type situations and not necessarily crime-related, but even some of these points would have helped in Floyd's situation and definitely would have helped in many other police situations. Regardless of these simple, common-sense de-escalation techniques, there are lots of other factors contributing to Floyd's death and the death and incarceration of lots of other people of color. This goes way deeper than a single situation. I don't think people get it yet. I don't think police gets it. I don't think the government gets it. I'm reminded of a hilariously dark moment in the Serial podcast, uh, season three, episode three, where at a community meeting in Cleveland regarding policing, a police officer asks Samaria Rice how she can help them fix the police. She laughed in his face. This is Samaria Rice mother of Tamir Rice, who was 12 years old and shot in the stomach within seconds as the police arrived. He was playing in a park. That officer wasn't charged with anything, by the way, and I'll grace your ear holes by not mentioning the dude's name. Why should police ask us how we can help them? By lining up against the wall like a firing squad to make it easier on you? By being meek and compliant only to get shot anyways? By denying our own rights just to not cause trouble? George Floyd and Tamir Rice are not isolated incidents. There's this nifty website called mappingpoliceviolence.org that shows us the awful statistics regarding police violence. It has a map showing you every person killed by police in the U.S. last year. It has fun, interactive graphs, like the one that tells us that black people are three times more likely to get killed by police than white people, and that Hispanic people like me are 1.5 times more likely than white people to be killed by police. Or another one that shows that 99% of killings by police since 2013 are not resulting in charges for the officers. They're not being held accountable. Or another one that shows black people are six times more likely to be killed in Oklahoma than in Georgia. Or the one that shows that there's no correlation between violent crime rates in a city and police killings, which means that violence isn't justified based on the crime of the area. So yeah, there's nothing I can do to help the police, because it doesn't matter if anyone commits a crime or not, because they'll shoot anyways. They'll escalate to violence anyways. What even is resisting arrest? An officer can decide to pull you over for no reason, yank you out of your car for no reason, and beat you senseless for resisting arrest. But there was no reason to be arrested in the first place. What even is the Fourth Amendment? Barely scratching the surface. People aren't protesting over nothing. And they're still not listening. 
there's a Twitter thread that was started by an attorney, ever-growing, turned into a spreadsheet, turned into a map that shows over 450 videos of police brutality during these protests. That's not over the years. That's in the past couple months. Cops indiscriminately pepper spraying out of their car windows, driving their cars into crowds, pushing people down, pulling signs out of people's hands, shooting people with rubber bullets that are standing on their own porch, and many other instances of fragile masculinity with permission to use force. All allowed and encouraged by the president of this silly, stupid country. You might be saying, what they did to George Floyd was bad. But what's the goal of all these protests and rioting? Well, straw man that I built to teach a lesson, first of all, protesters and rioters are not the same group and shouldn't be lumped together in the same way that you may be inclined to separate good cops and bad cops. I will say that I completely discourage the destruction of local communities and that if they must destroy something, take it to the rich neighborhoods and the large corporations because they have insurance and they can afford it. Secondly, the goal is a very important thing to discuss. How could we have gotten this far and no one has mentioned the goal? Well, the policy platforms of Black Lives Matter are pretty easy to find on the internet. These are the things they're asking for. Quote, We demand an end to the war against black people. We demand repair for past and continuing harms. We demand a divestment from the police and investment in black communities. We demand economic justice for all our people. We demand community control. We demand independent black political power and black self-determination in all areas of society. We demand the rights of protesters to be respected. We demand immediate relief for our communities. End quote. Now, this shouldn't be too hard to solve, right? Just do these things and people will stop rioting. Well, given the video evidence I mentioned earlier, the police and government don't seem inclined to do any of these things, do they? Here's my opinion as to how you get people to stop rioting. Once again, checking my privilege, but I'm not an authority on this. I haven't lived the experience that many other people have, and I have my own prejudices and issues that prove that I'm not the authority on this, like the fact that I'm Venezuelan and not black. I have absolutely no power or authority whatsoever. Okay, with that, let's hypothetically give me all the power. It's silly, I know, but let's say the government is this one entity that can collectively make a decision like this. I've talked about this on the podcast before, but I thought a lot about the anatomy of an apology. Like when Dan Harmon, quote, got away with it when he apologized for sexually harassing Megan Gans, let's have the U.S. government give a, quote, masterclass in how to apologize. Here's the anatomy of a good apology, according to researchers at Ohio State University. One, expression of regret. Two, explanation of what went wrong. Three, acknowledgement of responsibility. Four, declaration of repentance. Five, offer of repair. Six, request forgiveness. Now, 
I had a discussion with a friend of mine about this, and I'm not looking for intention here. I can't make an amorphous blob of brains, biases, and bureaucracy mean it when the whole unit apologizes. What I'm looking for is the results of a good apology. I don't care if they mean it as long as the changed behavior is present. Would be nice, though. Dan Harmon had to do the work of analyzing every mistake he made, every way in which he wronged this person, to really even be able to give this apology. The best way to, quote, offer repair, like mentioned previously, is to change one's behavior. It's very easy to say a bunch of fancy words and think you've gotten away with it, but I wouldn't consider the apology complete until the actions are complete. So let's go through this from the position of the United States. What does the U.S. need to regret, admit that went wrong, be responsible for, repent for, repair, and be forgiven for? A good start would be, let's say, systemic racism as a whole? (laughs) There's lots of resources and lots of media that discusses this, but to start, I highly suggest the documentary 13th which Ava DuVernay and team has decided to put on YouTube for free. No Netflix subscription required. But here's just me spitballing stuff I remember from the variety of sources that I've been reading, watching, and listening to when preparing for this. Starting back with slavery. Forcibly taking people, people that were deemed subhuman from their native environment and subjecting them to lifetimes and generations of hard labor and abuse against their will. Even while creating a new country, fighting for freedom against tyranny, they still deemed these people as three-fifths of a human in the constitution that America holds so sacred and God-given, creating a problem that they'll just kick down the line for other generations to deal with. Might I add, a revolution beginning with the Boston Tea Party destroying property in a form of activism that is simultaneously regarded as heroic in history, yet property destruction is frowned upon in protest today. They even created teams of enforcers to hunt down and capture escaped slaves that were the precursors to the police as we know them now. Then, as the country expanded... They treated the indigenous people of North America as subhuman as well, systematically eradicating them, pushing them from their homelands, infecting them with diseases, breaking treaties, and erasing their cultures and languages by kidnapping their children. Then, when the moral problem of slavery couldn't wait anymore, the people who kept profiting off of slave labor decided it was something worth fighting to keep. So they separated from the United States and created a separate country and fought a war. They lost that war. That country only existed from 1861 to 1865. Yet some people today like to keep a memory of that stupid, greedy, morally bankrupt country and ideology by keeping a flag around for some reason. And then get mad when people point out the racism that they're showcasing. But anyways... The people that didn't consider black people to be human lost the war, but in order to continue to treat black people as subhuman, they created laws known as Jim Crow laws that effectively made it illegal to be black in certain places, which they enforced with the same slave catchers from before, except then they became the enforcers of their racist laws. Also, 
even though overt slavery ended, the 13th Amendment made it to where slavery was still legal if someone was incarcerated, which made it to where slaves were still around as long as they made it illegal to be black, essentially. Hence, the previously mentioned Jim Crow laws. So a whole system developed around forcing black people to be slaves by moving the goalposts around their activity and arresting them for their new criminality. They used the status of criminal to justify mistreating black people and distracting from the lynchings, abuse, violence, riots, etc. that happened over the years against them. But then there's the rest of systemic racism that's still alive today, even after the civil rights movement. First, it's important to understand that 76.5% of the U.S. population is white and 13.4% is black. 18.3% is Hispanic. I feel the need to clarify that people can be black and Hispanic. Therefore, the percentages can add up to be greater than 100. On to the systemic racism article. It's pretty funny that my source on this is an ice cream company. Wealth. White families hold 90% of the national wealth. Latino families hold 2.3% and black families hold 2.6%. For every $100 white families earn in income, black families earn just $57.30. Employment. The black unemployment rate has been consistently twice that of white people over the past 60 years. And then black people with college degrees are twice as likely to be unemployed as other graduates. One study found that job applicants with white-sounding names get called back about 50% more of the time than applicants with black-sounding names, even when they have identical resumes. Education. Black students are three times more likely to be suspended than white students, even when their infractions are similar. Once black children are in the criminal justice system, they are 18 times more likely to be sentenced as adults than white children. Criminal justice. Black people make up 13% of the population, but they represent about 40% of the prison population. Perhaps because if a black person and a white person each commit a crime, the black person has a better chance of being arrested. It's also true that once arrested, black people are convicted more often than white people. Housing. Black people are shown 18% fewer homes and 4% fewer rentals than white people. When the government sought to make mortgages more affordable back in the 1930s, thereby jumpstarting the epic of suburban living, the Homeowners Loan Corporation, and thereafter private banks, ranked neighborhoods all around the country, giving high marks to all white neighborhoods and marking those with minorities in red as risky investments. Redlining, which essentially barred black people and other minorities from sharing in the American dream and building wealth like their white counterparts, was officially outlawed in the 60s, but the practice really never went away. In fact, during the Great Recession, banks routinely and purposely guided black home buyers towards subprime loans. Surveillance. More than half of all young black Americans know someone, including themselves, who has been harassed by the police. Black drivers are 30% more likely to be pulled over than white people. Healthcare. 67% of doctors have an unconscious racial bias against black patients. Black people are far more likely than white people to lack access to emergency medical care. 
These are extrinsic problems. These aren't new problems. These are old problems being translated into new problems. And people have been talking about it for years. This war between black and white people has been going on for centuries now. There's a good Twitter thread from Erica Buddington that has a list of racially motivated riots. I won't list all of them because this would be a much longer podcast if I did, but I will list some to give some background as to how activism, violence, and crime is responded to in our system. New York City draft riots, 1863. The white working class was upset because of the Civil War draft and resented free black people who were employed in lower Manhattan. White rioters attacked black people throughout the city. The death toll was 119 plus people. Opelousa's Massacre, 1868. The deadliest massacre in Reconstruction era Louisiana happened 150 years ago, according to the Smithsonian. A white school teacher slash journalist on the side of black liberation was beaten. Black people were accused of plotting revenge and 250 people were killed. Hamburg Massacre, South Carolina, 1876. White supremacists wanted to regain control of state governments and eradicate the civil rights of black Americans. 100 white men attacked black people. 94 white men were indicted for murder by a coroner's jury. None were prosecuted. Wilmington Race Riot, North Carolina, 1898. After an editorial in a black newspaper... A white mob of 400 to 500 people marched into the newspaper office, smashed the press, and burned down the building. The rioters delayed a black fire company long enough to ensure destruction to the property. Reports of the death toll are conflicting, ranging from 25 to 250. Tulsa, Oklahoma, 1921. Black Wall Street was a prosperous black area in Tulsa. A black teen was accused of assaulting an elevator operator. The threat of lynching loomed, and 75 black people showed up to protect the teen, met by 1,500 armed white people. Shots broke out, and black people fled. Groups of white Tulsans, some deputized and given weapons by the city, committed many acts of violence against black people. 1,256 houses were burned. 215 others were looted but not torched. Two newspapers, school, library, hospital, churches, hotels, and many other black-owned businesses. In 2001, the report of the Race Riot Commission concluded that between 100 and 300 people were killed and more than 8,000 people made homeless over those 18 hours in 1921. Those numbers are thought to be much higher. Detroit, Michigan, 1943. Black and white youth started fighting after years of tensions. Issues amplified after a rumor spread that a black mother and child were thrown in the Detroit River. Black people looted slash destroyed property as retaliation. White people did the same to black areas. 35 people were killed, 25 black, and most at the hands of the white police force. 433 were wounded, 75% of them black. Most of the riot and damage took place in the black area of Paradise Valley, the poorest neighborhood of the city. King assassination riots, Holy Week uprising, everywhere. 1968. 
the greatest wave of social unrest the United States had experienced since the Civil War after the assassination of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Okay, this is Santiago adding something here. To quote President Lyndon B. Johnson, What did you expect? I don't know why we're so surprised. When you put your foot on a man's neck and hold him down for 300 years, and then you let him up, what's he going to do? He's going to knock your block off. Dr. King campaigned for a federal fair housing law in 1966, but it was never passed. The riots following Dr. King's assassination revived the bill, and President Johnson wrote a letter to the U.S. House, urging them to pass the Civil Rights Act of 1968. And according to American history textbooks that we learned from in school, that was the end of all racism and white people live with all other races peacefully forever. That's obviously wrong. Let's continue with the list of riots. Rodney King riots, Los Angeles, 1992. Unrest began in L.A. after a trial jury acquitted four officers of the Los Angeles Police Department for usage of excessive force in the arrest and beating of Rodney King, which had been videotaped and widely viewed in TV broadcasts. Trayvon Martin protests, 2013. Protests held in 100-plus U.S. cities after the murder of Trayvon Martin. Cities geared up for a fight, but instead had peaceful protests. Ferguson, Missouri, 2014. Riots began after the fatal shooting of Michael Brown by a police officer, and Michael Brown's body lay in the street for four hours. Police established curfews and deployed riot squads to maintain order before protests began. The officer was not indicted. Brown was unarmed. This is one that I'm adding. Charlottesville, Virginia, 2017. The Unite the Right rally was a white supremacist and neo-Nazi rally where marchers chanted racist and anti-Semitic slogans, carried weapons and flags and symbols to protest the removal of a statue of Robert E. Lee from a park. There was one death at the rally, Heather Heyer, who was killed by a man deliberately driving his car into a crowd of counter-protesters. Two other deaths were state troopers in a helicopter crash that were on their way to provide additional security. Again, these are not all of the racial riots that have happened in the past, just notable ones that I had the time to mention. These are all examples in which justice was not served, hatred prevailed, or protests escalated into violence with virtually no action taken afterwards. Not to mention all of the other times that people rioted over sports wins or losses with basically no consequences. We also historically mislabel some of these as riots when they should be considered massacres or mass arrests. We're just moving forward, business as usual. More laws have been passed to imprison more people, though, like mandatory minimum sentences for nonviolent drug offenses, stop and frisk policies, along with stay your ground laws allowing more people to be killed without consequences. Meanwhile, white-collar crime continues among the super-rich, with only one person going to jail for the 2008 financial crisis, and deeply connected pedophiles only facing 18 months in prison, then walking free, then caught again before mysteriously being suicided before trial. And then we have presidential candidates that were involved with said pedophile, 
saying and doing anything and everything to make them disgusting, while a huge portion of the population makes excuses for them. Maybe we're starting to feel like peaceful protest isn't working. Maybe we're starting to feel like the system doesn't care about us. For example, the Black Panthers were deliberately targeted in the public as enemies of the state and were systematically murdered by the FBI. And all they wanted to do was help their communities. The Black Panthers would see problems in their communities and united with everyone, not just black people, to make sure that these problems would be solved, like giving schools free breakfast so the students could do well in school or provide health care for those in their communities. Yet they were met with more vitriol and violence. But yes, they did encourage gun ownership because it was their legal right to do so. And they protected people at black protests, gay protests, and women's protests from police brutality by having them be at the front lines, armed and seemingly dangerous. But it was a lot of black hippies like Nile Rogers dressed to look intimidating. Really, people have felt the system didn't care about them for a long, long time. And yet, nothing is happening. It's not just the war on drugs. It's the deliberate redlining of communities even after desegregation, giving reasons not legally involving race to continue to segregate, as well as denying them from schools and jobs, etc., etc. This racism has made its way into our pop culture. The show's cops and live PD frequently depicted black people disproportionately as criminals, adding to the sense that black people are criminals and deserve the treatment they're getting. This perception of black fear in popular culture was seen back in Birth of a Nation, 1915, which depicts the Ku Klux Klan as heroes and paints black people as monsters, a film that was praised by the president then. So much media contributes to this picture of black people as criminal and scary, leading police officers to presume guilt of innocent people, like how Megan Ming Francis was stopped by the TSA for no reason until she told them she was a professor at a university, after which they let her go. We've internalized this racism on all fronts. Anyways, I'm losing my train of thought. Let's go back to this apology concept. The whole of the system needs to acknowledge and apologize for every instance of systemic racism that it has been supporting or at the very least allowing. We need to dismantle and analyze every piece of our government and culture to truly see how racist we have become. And it starts with the police, because they are the front-facing representatives between law and citizens. The people don't trust the police anymore. They've had their chance. They're overfunded, hyper-militarized, untouchable by law, and grossly negligent. So, now we get to the idea of defunding the police. What does defunding the police mean? It means that instead of giving the police departments more power, which comes by way of money, we give that money to the communities. Why do people commit crime? Is it because they're horrible people from the inside? Or is it because they have needs that aren't being met? Needs like food, shelter, opportunity, and community aren't being met. All the police are doing is covering up a greater festering wound. The system has left people behind. Not just black people, but all people. We have the highest disproportion of wealth in history. The rich are the richest they've ever been, and everyone else is left with scraps. These people are desperate, and they'll struggle and grind to survive. If you're dying of thirst, like Kendrick, 
You're not going to worry about whether or not the way you obtain water is legal. You're simply going to try to survive. So instead of giving the police more funding, we support the community. When people have options other than crime, there's less need for law enforcement. We can give options to poor families. We never seem to ask how we got to the point of crime. Instead, we try to stop the crime. We should be focused on prevention rather than enforcement. After generations of systematically keeping groups of people down, we should offer an open hand instead of a closed fist. Domestic disturbances don't require deadly force. Loudness complaints don't require deadly force. A taillight being out doesn't require deadly force. Yet, when people call 911, the only option for some of these things is an armed person predisposed to fear black and brown people through generations of propaganda who would face little to no consequences if they act on those fears. So instead of sending an armed person, we could send someone trained in dealing with drug addicts or someone else who deals with domestic issues or whatever other nonviolent situation that can be solved without violence. Maybe we need a 912 like Andrew Yang suggested on Twitter. There's also an option of completely abolishing the police, which would effectively leave all of the responsibilities of the police to be taken care of by alternative organizations, like the ones I've been mentioning. That's a pretty radical idea for some, but to really create change, we have to think outside the box. I personally believe that abolishing the police allows too much leeway for privatization and corruption to be left unchecked by the citizens affected by those private organizations that would replace the police. However, Places could abolish the police in order to reinstate it, like a rebirth. It would leave room for reform to take place upon its reinstatement, like in Camden, New Jersey. Let's say we do keep police and decide to reform. It only takes up to two years to become a police officer, and that's on the long side of the spectrum. Doctors have to go through rigorous, intense schooling and training for years and years, and while it may seem to be comparing apples and oranges— why are the standards so much lower for police? The reason for my comparison is that police are regarded as the bridge between law and citizens to whom the law applies. Should it really be some rando who only trained for six months, in some states, on the shortest end? Is this person really equipped to handle a life and death situation in six months? Then there's all of the other stuff that goes by the wayside. No-knock raids should never have been a thing. The officers that killed Breonna Taylor have not been arrested. They even filed her incident report wrong. Her incident report listed injuries as none. This is unacceptable. They were too lazy to report accurately and still face no consequences for this. Then there's all of the body camera footage that gets recorded every day and gets disorganized in some small town police headquarters. What do we do with that? Come on, it's 2020. YouTube's algorithms already auto-generate subtitles for any videos posted, and Google's algorithms can identify content in photos and video. It's not like this stuff isn't sortable. Basically, we could have algorithms identify and sort all of the recordings from all police interactions, and if an incident occurs, there's at least some sort of organizational and transcription work done. We could equip police firearms and tasers with smart sensors to make it to where only they can fire it, but it also automatically files an incident report and links it to the timestamp of the body cam footage. Our phones are more secure than their firearms. Right now, we're running on an honor system with entire organizations that have none. 
I don't trust them because they could kill me and never face consequences. There's no accountability, but we have all the tools necessary to make change. So maybe they should apologize for not making these changes. It's not like there aren't options. The things I'm talking about here are the tip of the iceberg. Finally, the accountability has to go all the way up. Every institution has to admit their role in systemic racism and actively take part in dismantling it. We can easily laugh at the removal of Aunt Jemima from syrup bottles or large corporations paying lip service to Black Lives Matter and not take it seriously. However, these are actually real points of progress. By shaping the culture we live with, we can reduce casual racism from that of our grandparents' time. We don't have to stand for light racism just because it comes from an old family member. We have to unanimously say no to all of it. I've given you just some of the evidence of systemic racism, and you can look into the rest of the mountains of evidence for yourself. The worst part about all of this, the part that makes me feel hopeless rather than optimistic, is that we are perfectly poised to not make any of these changes. The Trump administration is exactly the entity to do the opposite of these things. They will not apologize. They will not reform. They will not adapt. They will not admit guilt. I don't even think the man would even know what he's guilty of. Donald Trump is a textbook narcissist. He's probably a sociopath, rapist, and pedophile as well, like his good friend Jeffrey Epstein. This is easily accessible evidence that took me two seconds to Google. Every politician that supports him has lost all credibility, integrity, and, in layman's terms, balls. They have no balls. These are the people that have somehow been elected. Every person that supports Donald Trump is ignorant, morally bankrupt, or both. I'd rather the former rather than the latter because something can be done about ignorance. Moral bankruptcy much like Trump's own multiple bankruptcies, is difficult to reform, yet very easy to spin in a world that rewards such behavior. Very often, we see that the morally bankrupt don't get to suffer the consequences of their behavior, but still we find that the world makes sure that no good deed goes unpunished. Abraham Lincoln was assassinated. Martin Luther King Jr. and Malcolm X were assassinated. JFK was assassinated. And yet... Andrew Jackson lived, Jefferson Davis lived, Ronald Reagan lived, David Duke still lives, Donald Trump still lives. It's clear that a certain side of this eternal struggle has far greater moral fortitude than the other. I believe this is a greater moral problem that we have yet to acknowledge fully. I have very strong moral guidelines for myself. To me, love is the meaning of life. I could never imagine taking anyone's life. This culture tells us that such a stance is weak. I've come to find that holding fast to one's morals and values is a significant strength. I'm confident that there will be no attempt on the president's life because those who truly despise the president still have some level of moral fortitude. I'm confident that the current president and his administration will not be the arbiters of reform and repair. As much change as we are capable of by protesting and exercising our rights, I am convinced that the current administration and the rest of Congress complicit in this stagnation will not allow necessary reform. Voting for Joe Biden, while a small hope for some, will not allow the necessary reform. 
Nobody wanted these choices. We are being held hostage as a nation. We are being held hostage by the totalitarian dichotomy of the party system. We are being held hostage by police that refuse to be held accountable. We are being held hostage by a system that punishes having dark skin. We are being held hostage by a small group of rich elites hoarding all the wealth. We have been kidnapped by our government and, against our will, have been taken to dark places. I am convinced that the only way that reform is possible is for Donald Trump to resign. Since any admission of defeat is effectively impossible for a textbook narcissist, the necessary change will not happen as long as Donald Trump is president of the United States. I am not convinced that Joe Biden will do any better than any other candidate that was in the Democratic primaries. I'm not saying don't vote for Biden. I'm saying that voting alone will not cause the necessary change. We are being held hostage. We did not ask for this. However, we are the necessary change. We are the ones in power. We outnumber them all. We must demand change. We can no longer live with these chains. So many of us have put more chains on ourselves through our own internalized racism, internalized powerlessness, and complacency. No more. It is up to us to dismantle systemic racism. It is up to us to shine a light on police brutality. It is up to us to come together and use our collective power to break these chains and fight so that we are no longer being held hostage by a system that doesn't give a fuck about us. To quote Kimberly Jones, they are lucky that what black people are looking for is equality and not revenge. So what are you going to do? I don't know about you, but I'm going to continue seeking to eradicate ignorance in myself and encourage the same for others. I'm going to continue to listen to those in pain and to those that have gone so long without a voice. I'm going to open myself up to the wisdom of those whose experiences are nothing like mine. Then, I'm going to share those experiences and use my voice to lift up the voices of the voiceless. All sources and more resources are on my website. Together, we can make a change. Stay woke. Until Black Lives Matter, All Lives Matter is not a true statement. Love never fails. It's going to be okay. I might be wrong. <laughs>